This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. The church has always and continues to this day to live in a tension between separation and assimilation. How far do we adjust to the culture without compromising our Christian convictions? How far do we blend into the culture without losing our Christian identity? These are critical questions that has been the tension that Christianity has lived in because we tend to preach separation but practice isolation. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. Who am I? It's a question everyone asks at one time or another. For some, they seem to be born with a strong sense of who they are. For others, it's a question they struggle with for quite a while. Well, today I'm talking with someone whose identity and purpose was seen clearly by others before he saw it in himself. Dr. A.R. Bernard, author, global influencer, and the pastor of the Christian Cultural Center in Brooklyn, New York, tells us what his childhood looked like. He wasn't always a follower of Christ, though. Because Jesus had only been presented to him as a white man unconcerned about his plight as a young black kid facing the challenges of inner city life in New York, Jesus seemed unrelatable. But as we will find out in just a few minutes, God used the ministry of a former gang leader to transform Dr. Bernard's understanding of who Jesus really was. That and more is coming up on this episode of Where You're From. I was born in Central America, in Panama. Okay. My mother ran track for the Olympics in Panama, Venezuela, Jamaica. She was preparing for the Helsinki Games, and she practiced with the other Olympians at a track in Panama City. Across from that stadium was a restaurant that most of them gathered to eat and enjoy each other's company. Well, the restaurant owner decided to pursue a relationship with this young, naive girl, and she lost her virginity to him. He was twice her age. She ended up getting pregnant and now was faced with a decision what to do because she had a full scholarship to come to the United States to run for Tuskegee Institute. You know the reputation of their track team. She was a gold medalist, silver medalist, bronze medalist. And um, that scholarship was now in jeopardy. And of course, the embarrassment publicly because she was high profile, and now she's pregnant. So she made a decision to keep me. She, as a result, lost the scholarship. She had to step away from the Olympic team. And 
the day that I was born, my father decided that he didn't want anything to do with her or me. So for the first four years of my life, she was grieving. She lost everything, but held on to this baby. And between her uncles and herself, put together some money to send us both to the United States to make a new start. So September 30th, 1957, we landed here in New York and took up residency in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn. And that began my American journey. Wow. That's interesting because that's something else I didn't know we had in common. The uh, doctors also, uh, because my mom got very sick uh, when she was pregnant with me, um, you know, wanted to encourage her to abort me mm-hmm. as well. And she uh, decided not to. And I'm forever grateful for that. So your earliest memories were in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. Well, no, I have memories of my childhood in Panama. Oh, okay. You know, when I came here, I couldn't speak a word of English. I spoke Spanish only. So assimilating into American society was quite a challenge, especially when I entered school. Okay. My father was a white Spaniard. My mother, a black descendant of Africans who were brought over to the Caribbean. So mulatto, growing up in the late 50s and the 60s of America, which was the decade of every revolution imaginable, it shaped me spiritually, socially, uh, intellectually because I was too light to be black and too dark to be white. So I had to make a decision as to my identity, and I chose to identify with the West African diaspora. So a lot there. One, if you could kind of paint a picture of what it looked like to be too light to be identified with black or too Mulatto, dark. come on. The history of right, America right, right. for those who were light-skinned black because they had white parentage. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, there was a bit of shame and despise from the white community and there was resentment from the black community. So why make that choice then of all the, you know, if you had an option to kind of be more identified with the fair-skinned folks with, you know, less uh, systemic I don't know. Maybe it came out of the rejection of my white father, but I think it's more of me reading my way into it. Once I began to understand the African-American experience, especially in North America, that's where I wanted to lay my hat. I began to understand America in a way that put in my lens its original sin. You gotta remember, I'm in the context of the civil rights movement, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, the Black Power movement, Stokely Carmichael, I mean, the Black Panthers. I'm in the mix of all of this social impact. I was also part of the desegregation program. So I was bused from Brooklyn to Queens as part of the acceleration of the desegregation of white schools. So I was growing up in both a white and black context, which was quite interesting. When you have this kind of dynamic going on, you know, you're trying to resolve the identity crisis that is common to all human beings. So for me, it was resolved in a strong affinity to the black experience. And for us, it was a choice between Malcolm and Dr. King. And for me, it was Malcolm. And those in my circles, it was Malcolm. We did not really appreciate Dr. King's level of sacrifice and understanding of long-term change. 
So for us, it was the system that needed to be overthrown. That's what led me into the nation of Islam. And how old are you at this point when you're reading these books and having this oh, I mean, awareness? Oh, I in the 60s. So I'm 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. I was traveling up to Harlem, you know, because my aunt lived up at 133rd Street. So I would, you know, go downtown as part of that while I was up there. So I was exposed to uh, a lot of this. I mean, I wasn't there at the time, but it seems like this is pretty heavy processing for a 13-year-old. My design is cerebral. I read encyclopedias, and I was very pragmatic. So I studied the Phoenician alphabet so I could learn how to write notes in school and not get busted. So for me, I was very pragmatic. <laughs> okay. So, wow, you you actually learned the Phoenician alphabet so yeah. that you could write notes without the Absolutely. teacher knowing? <laughs> That's pretty impressive. I had to teach some of my friends, otherwise we couldn't <laughs> communicate. Wow. I, and, and that also shows you for the right motivation, kids will learn just about anything. Creativity. Yeah. Okay, so walk me through the connection into the, the entry point into the Nation of Islam. As I continue to become more socially aware, socially conscious, what they call today woke, by the time I'm getting out of high school, now I'm making decisions. I'm working in a uh, work-study program, so I was going to school while working in the banking uh, industry as a, as a young clerk. And remember, I'm growing up without a father. So single-parent mother who's working two jobs to make ends meet, I literally raised myself. I made a decision that the Nation of Islam presented me with order, strength, identity, purpose, but I didn't find God. Somehow intuitively as a young kid, I knew that God, truth, and reality were synonymous. So wherever I found one, the other two had to be present. And with the Nation of Islam, I didn't find God. I found a truth about the black experience. And I understood it not as a religion, but as a social protest against the failure of white America to deal with the socioeconomic plight of blacks in this country. I understood that. It was about black empowerment. And even they were separatists. I never bought into scapegoating white people as the devil. I understood that it's structures, systems, policies. It's the institutionalized racism that we had to deal with. But it was good for me to be within that context because of what it gave me. Now, that was from 1970 to 1975, which was the year that Elijah Muhammad died. During that five-year period, I came in contact with three unique experiences within Christianity and Christian influence. So in 19... 71, which is the year before my wife and I got married. We were walking down the street and two old ladies come up to her and pull her aside, ask, can we talk to you for a moment? She says, yes, I'm standing on the side. She comes back to me and I ask her, what was that all about? And she said, they asked me if I loved you. And I said, well, of course, what did you say? I want to know. And she said, of course, I told them yes. She said, then they asked, are you ready for what God has in store for him? And I said, yes. That was 71. 72, we got married. 73, my wife's aunt called and told her that she needed to see me, but not to come with me. 
I ended up going to her house, and she said, I've got to pray for you. She asked me to kneel down. You know, I had a big fro at the time. So she put her hand in the middle of my fro, <laughs> left a big handprint. She said, that's it. I said, that's it? She said, yeah. So I left. 74, I got a secretary that I didn't want working for me. Remember, I'm working at the bank from 1970 to 1979. So the end of that year, December, she invited me to a meeting. It was taking place downtown Brooklyn. And a guy named Nicky Cruz was going to be at the meeting. And he was going to be sharing his story about his conversion to Christianity. So I said, that's interesting, because she said he was the former head of the Mau Mau gangs out in Fort Greene. So my wife and I went. And that night, something happened to me. I experienced a deep and profound, intuitive awareness of God. Two things that I heard intuitively, no voice from the sky or the ceiling, intuitively. Number one, I'm the God that you're looking for. I knew somehow it was Christ. It was Jesus. Number two, I and my word are one. That was important because what I knew about this Jesus was through the iconography of a white Jesus, movies, artwork that was part of American history since the middle 1800s. Why that was important to me is because it erased the image of Jesus that I saw in paintings and artwork and brought me to a Jesus who was revealed in Scripture. Now I had something to wrestle with. Now there was knowledge, there was information, there was text that represented this Christ. That began a journey. Less of a journey with the institution of Christianity, more of a journey with the person of Christ. I became fascinated with him because I began to see him in a totally new light. So now I moved from a multicultural environment to a predominantly black church experience. I was not familiar with the black church experience, the evangelical church experience. So this was new. And what impressed me was how they were quoting scripture. Mm. Now it's feeding my mind. Okay. And I'm asking questions. I'm being introduced to doctrines and the history of it uh, and its impact socially on the black community and what it meant to the black church experience. I'm saying, hey, this is cool. So I stayed there and found that I had a gift to articulate biblical truth. And I continued to grow and began a Bible study group. That Bible study group translated officially into a church in January of 1978. Were you looking for it too? Or did it just, like when you started no, no, the Bible no, study? I, I, no, okay. I, I was just happy studying and Got learning it. and growing. Okay. But there were people who wanted more than just coming together like that, studying. They wanted to worship together. Hmm. And it's interesting because in as much as they expressed that when we started, very few of them showed up. <laughs> oh, so Lord. it was just me and my wife and... My two sons. The reality at the time. of starting a church. You know, it's just that's just the way it is. But I was already committed. Mm. So we started having services with just us. Really? That's right. Four people. That's it. When we come back, we will find out how Dr. A.R. Bernard's storefront church of four people became one of the largest churches in the United States with over 45,000 members. And how 
That journey is now leading Dr. Bernard and his church to address the issues of gentrification, low-income housing, and other economic issues that directly impact his community in Brooklyn, New York. You're listening to Where You're From. If you're enjoying Where You're From, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one-sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five-star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help and keep listening for more of Where You're From. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Hey, people. My name is Jade Gustafson, and I'm one of the producers for Where You're From. Before we jump back into our conversation with Dr. A.R. Bernard, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next guest, Dr. Esau McCauley. This is Where You're From. A friend of mine who was also going to go to college in the same area, I seen him at the Black Arts Festival, and I was like, hey, man, he said, I'm going here. I said, oh, we'll catch up. We'll chop it up there. And so I'm packed up to um, go to college, and then the story comes on the news that uh, he had actually been shot mm. and killed. And I remember thinking he never got a chance to go to college. And it made me think of all of the people in my neighborhood who didn't get a chance to go to college. And so I realized at that moment that I wasn't going to college just for me. I was going to college for all the people who never got a chance. This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. Before we hit play on part two of my conversation with Dr. A.R. Bernard, just a quick reminder that the show notes are available in the podcast description. There you will find not only the talking points for today's show, but also a link to a free ebook titled This Far by Faith, Legacies of the Black Church. This ebook is a special edition of our daily bread that celebrates the rich legacy of God's faithfulness to the black church. This 20-day devotional is yours for free by clicking on the link in the show notes, which you can find in the podcast description or on our website, whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, O-R-G. Before the break, Dr. Bernard described how he met Jesus, and he mentioned how his journey with Jesus led to starting a storefront church, a church that later became the 45,000-member Christian Cultural Center. But the Christian Cultural Center did not begin with 45,000 members. It didn't even begin with 10. It began with only four. You're listening to Where You're From. But I was already committed. Mm. So we started having services with just us. Really? That's right. Four people. That's it. And, you know, word of mouth and things like that. People started coming to check it out, etc. But that's really where we started. But that was 78. 
We incorporated January 15, 1979, which is a year later. By that time, we had 50 members. We relocated to a loft in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and the church continued to grow. Uh, predominantly Latino community and African-American mixture mm-hmm. and white, so it was multicultural, but predominantly Latino. So 1985, and I point to that year because it was a defining moment because I was at a clergy meeting with the mayor of New York City at the time and he disbanded the clergy liaison but he kept the Jewish representative and the Muslim representative and I challenged that I said what about the Christians he said well you Christians are a religion the Jews and the Muslims they are a culture the lights went off in my head I went back and began to revisit Christianity as a culture and its cultural influence over the last 2,000 years. A whole new world opened up to me. I saw Christ as the cosmic ruler of the universe to whom all governments, levels of authority, power, social institutions were subject to him. How does that play out in human society? So... I continued to grow, develop, and study. And by 2000, we were ready to change the name of the church to Christian Cultural Center. And we became full force engaging culture, experiencing our Christianity at the intersection of faith and culture. So how would you define culture? Culture is that integrated system of beliefs, traditions, customs, ideas, or ideologies, the language we use now, Uh, values and technologies that constitute the life of a people group. Essentially, culture is man's attempts to order his society and determine the best ways to live in it. And because there are differences of opinion, you know, we have the conflicts and clashes and political parties and social parties that are trying to present their way, their methodology, their ideas as the way to go. So for me, that essentially is what culture is. Now contrast that to the kingdom of God, which is the reign and rule of God or the government of God or God's way of doing and being, which means a culture. So there is God's order. There's God's way of thinking, doing, being. So Christianity was important to me because it, for me, gave me the truth about God, the truth about what it means to be human, the truth about what it means to live in this world. And those three things, are critical, foundational to a worldview. So my worldview began to be shaped and fashioned around the idea that God's presence had to be present within the culture in order to affect change. Maybe you can give a specific example of what that post-2000 kind of approach versus maybe the 1985 approach would have been to how you do ministry. You know, how does the understanding of this kind of kingdom of God as God's culture impacting and descending upon man, how does that change your methods or your philosophy? Well, now you begin to resolve the tension that the church has lived in from its inception. After the first 150 years, Jesus didn't come back. So it became less about the return of Christ and more about how do we now assimilate into the dominant culture and maintain our faith identity? What makes us different? Our Christian identity. What does that mean? Secondly, how far do we adjust to the culture without compromising our Christian convictions? How far do we blend into the culture 
without losing our Christian identity? These are critical questions that has been the tension that Christianity has lived in because we tend to preach separation but practice isolation. And we become separated, isolated, irrelevant. And according to Jesus, when the salt loses its savor, its, its purpose, its presence in the earth as the entity to preserve the moral integrity yeah. of society, right. we now lose our influence, we become ir- irrelevant. And he says we become trampled under the foot of society mm-hmm. or cast out of that society. Gotcha. What are some ways that you've seen that? Either the church um, kind of seed its role in trying to preserve or shine light into society and instead just kind of stand on the sidelines. You know, again, historically, the church has gone through extremes. Right. In the early days of the empire, first 300 years up to 316 when Constantine legalized Christianity in the empire, the church was engaged in humanitarian works, education, health care for those that society discarded. So Christianity began to develop the quality of life in such a way that Constantine was impressed with it and saw the value of it for the empire. So by the end of the 300s, now Christianity becomes the official religion of the empire. But that puts us in a new crisis because now that we're in that relationship with culture, who defines that? Do we define it or does the empire define it? And what happened was the empire began to define it. So we will, as the empire, protect your Christian values, make you legal, as long as you promote the agenda of the empire. If we could fast forward to American society, in the 13 colonies, there was no tension between separation and assimilation because it was beautifully blended together in the 13 colonies. And it continued right up to the Civil War. But at the Civil War, there was now a new tension pushing in opposite directions because you had the other side of progressive social reform, which was the church engaging culture, policies, systemic issues to deal with discrimination, racism, Mm. marginalization, oppression, disenfranchisement. So the Civil War really created that split and, you know, the country went in opposite directions. Conservatives went in the direction of separation. Mm. And then you had those who felt the only way we're going to make changes within society is social reform. We've got to change legislation and policies. We've got to get into government, into governmental systems, change legal codes. So they went opposite directions. Mm. And they've continued to this day. Okay, so this other thing, and, and maybe this, this was fascinating to me. So you kind of announced, I guess about two years ago or so, this uh, very ambitious program to build a unique kind of housing community. I'm curious, I, I would imagine that that seems to be in some way living out an aspect of what it means to integrate faith and culture. Absolutely. But could you share a little bit about what that project is and why you decided to embark on it? Okay, so let's start with the 13th century Europe. Okay. How were they building? They would build a church first 
and then build a community around the church. So when you go to Europe, you see central to those cities and communities, a cathedral. And next to it, you'll probably see a courthouse. <laughs> so you had law and grace, and the communities were built around that. So for us, we have 10 and a half acres of land. We have our church building that sits on six acres of that, including parking. What are we going to do with this? So we wanted to do something that would affect the quality of life of our community, especially in the face of gentrification in New York City. We were looking at the fact that there are middle-class individuals who need affordable housing. So your teachers, your fire personnel, your police officers, your first responders, your civil service workers, they needed affordable housing. So we wanted to do something that would still address which part of our project is MIH, mandatory inclusionary housing that says 20% has to be for the poor and working class. But then higher ranges of area median income would apply to middle-class housing. So our project is just that, a community, what I call an urban village. 2,100 residences of mixed income housing. 25, so far, French maisonettes for home ownership that will be built into the project. Retail, commercial, an educational building for 24-hour childcare vocational training in culinary arts, in electrical, plumbing, construction, contractors. So an educational building, a performing arts center, because we want to make this a destination. It has to be a walkable, livable community, which means amenities have to be within a thousand foot walking distance. We want it to be a community in which a low-income person can experience upward mobility without having to leave. Mm. Millennials, they're making too much to experience affordable housing. Mm. So they can't stay in the very communities that they grew up in and want to stay in. They've got to relocate out of the city. Mm. That shouldn't be. We want to address those needs. And it's a concept that we can take to any community. You take what's happening in Atlanta, Georgia, Atlanta proper, Gentrification, predominantly racial, whites have become more populated in Atlanta proper. Prices have gone up, and people of color who lived there for so long have now, in the tens of thousands, being pushed out to Atlanta suburbs at a rate faster than the suburbs' infrastructure can handle them, which is now creating the social issues of unemployment, crime, poverty, etc., so to do a project like ours, right, and bringing it into those kind of communities, it becomes an answer. And that is what it looks like for the kingdom of God Absolutely. to manifest itself on earth as it is in heaven. So one thing, uh, you know, you mentioned gentrification and obviously this vision for an urban village. But I'd like to ask you from a spiritual standpoint, as we're integrating faith and culture, right, what are the theological or philosophical principles and what would that even look like? So here's the theology around this. It begins with the fundamental image of God that is stamped on every human being from which we get our dignity, worth, and value and therefore are entitled to a quality of life consistent 
with that worth, that dignity, and that value. All right. So let's say a land developer and a bank that is looking to invest in a certain area decide, oh, this looks like from our projections, it's near a subway stop. You know, we think that we can make a lot of money out of building up high end, you know, uh, housing. How would the idea and the principle of the image of God, how would that change how I go about developing that land and that property? Because now you're not going to exploit the land. You're not going to exploit the people. I see. You're going to make sure that the outcome of that development maintains the quality of life consistent with that dignity. Got it. That becomes the guiding principle. Got it. And incorporated in that is an understanding that people are at different levels of life, but we have a responsibility to the least of these. It seems like from several messages I've listened to you, 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 20 play a significant role in how you think about culture and faith in this integration. Could you kind of unpack what you think the significance is of that passage? God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. So what does that mean? How does that translate? Well, when Adam and Eve sinned, it was a personal choice, but it created a condition. That condition is not what they gained as a result of sin, but what they lost. They lost holiness. They lost justice. They became wounded, broken, disordered, and dysfunctional. And with the absence of justice and holiness, now in their attempts to carry out the dominion mandate, it becomes corrupted. We have a responsibility to do good, but that good is always going to be challenged by that condition. So that's foundational. So we do everything we can because present at the inception of every human institution are the seeds of its own destruction. Mm -hmm. And that's because of the institutor, the condition of the institutor. Wow. What I gather is that there's a lesson in the incarnation itself that basically ties in this aspect of faith and culture. Like God incarnating, choosing to dwell among us as us shows us the redemptive value and significance of that aspect of who we are. The incarnation was a pattern. The prophetic word out of the Psalms was he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. That word became flesh. And it's not until that word is fleshed out do we behold its glory. Mm. The glory of an object is its intrinsic value, its worth. Mm. We don't experience that value, that worth, until it's incarnated. Okay, so someone might be listening to this and they go, that's amazing, I get that. But I don't I can't build a 2100 resident space. I, you know, I can't create an urban village. What can I do if I'm just a school teacher, if I'm just a, there is you know, no plumber? there is no just. OK, there are no small churches, small projects. There's only small thinking. Mm-hmm. And if you deal with that and remember, there's another pattern. Everything begins in seed form and grows into experience. Right. I started a little storefront in 1978. We didn't start here. 42 years later, we're here. But it took time. It took growth. We live life on levels. We arrive in stages. So begin where you are and then build upon that. And remember, every purpose and mission of God has internal impact and external impact. The internal impact is what it does for you as a person. Because more important than what you get in life is who you become in the process.
That's beautiful. Thank you for your time. You are welcome. Four things. Number one, God loves us. And boy, we could spend some time unpacking that. Number two, God created us for a purpose. Number three, God designed us for achievement. Number four, God believes in us. You unpack that, you spend some time with those four things, it'll change your life. That was Dr. A.R. Bernard sharing with us how to create and really care for our communities. But we don't have to be a pastor of a large church to make a difference. We can all make an impact in our communities by being faithful to whatever God has for us to do for those around us. This is where you're from. I'm Russell Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Mary Jo Clark, Daniel Ryan Day, Ryan Clevenger, and Jade Gustafson, and was engineered by Gabrielle Bauer and Kevin Burgess. I also want to give a quick shout out to John and Curtis for their help in supporting and promoting Where You're From. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.